Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In his 1940 novel, Darkness at Noon, Hungarian novelist Arthur Kessler tells the story of Rubishov, a Russian man who had been swept up in the Bolshevik Revolution that carried Vladimir Lenin to power in 1917. Rubishov had wholeheartedly thrown his support behind Lenin and had given his all for decades to serve the party and his country. He had believed without question that whatever actions the leadership took were necessary to achieve the utopian vision given to them through Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Even when witness to atrocities that violated his core sense of right and wrong, Rubashov did not waver. All too soon, though, he found himself forced not only to witness, but to do the very thing that seemed at odds with the vision to which he had given his life. Rubashov tries to ignore these moral struggles and rises to a position of some power in the Soviet regime. But when Joseph Stalin comes to power and begins his reign of terror, Rubashov begins to lose hope that the utopian vision that kept him going could ever be attained. When he begins to question the commands given to him by his superiors, Rubashov is arrested and sent to an internment camp. And there he finds himself at odds with those who he has known and worked with for decades, while discovering himself oddly drawn to the very royalists and religious leaders he has persecuted for decades. Rubashov is forced to deal with the realization that those he has demonized for most of his adult life may well not be the enemies he has considered them. Through three agonizing periods of interrogation and torture, Rubashov is forced to recant his criticisms of the party. He is promised a reprieve through a shorter sentence if he will publicly denounce his opposition. In the deepest tragedy of the novel, Rubashov chooses to believe his captors and confess, only to be executed just a few hours later. It's a tragic story, one that resonates with the heartache of the narrative we tell this and every Holy Week. We enter this most intense of weeks in the Christian year with the shouts of joy and adulation as Jesus enters Jerusalem with the welcome of a conquering hero, only to find ourselves dragged through this week to its inevitable conclusion on what seems the ironically named Good Friday, when we see love itself, love incarnate, crucified by the powers of ignorance and fear and hatred and violence. How quickly do those shouts of adulation turn to demands for blood? Jesus knows what's likely to happen when he enters Jerusalem. It's been obvious to him almost from the start. The religious and political leaders fear him not because of what he intends to do, but because of what they fear he might do. 
He wasn't the first itinerant preacher to come along riling up the masses. There had been a steady stream of them for decades, ever since the Romans had deposed the Hasmonean dynasty of priestly Jewish rulers and made all of Palestine a vassal state for the Roman Empire. Jewish leaders had never stopped dreaming of freedom from Rome and a restoration of the glory of the nation under David and the Hasmoneans. Every few years, it seemed a charismatic leader would come along promising liberation and raising hopes. And all too soon, Rome was sending in troops to quell a rebellion, and those hopes were all too quickly dashed. By the time of Jesus, religious leaders in Jerusalem, though they detested Roman cultural and religious beliefs and practices, had made their peace with Rome. They were tired of seeing the streets filled with blood, tired of trying to quell the patriotic fervor of the people, and most of all, tired of paying the price for such rebellions. Each time the people rose up against Rome, the religious leaders in Jerusalem struggled to hold on to the power, position, privilege, and prosperity they enjoyed in that uneasy peace with Rome. They knew there was no real hope of success against Rome, and so they accepted it. The problem was getting the rest of the people to accept it. That's why they feared Jesus. He stood in that long line of rebellious leaders who inspired hope and enthralled crowds. The religious and political leaders saw him as just another threat to the stability of the region, and they were determined to get rid of him before things got out of hand. Jesus knows their fears, and that's why he does everything possible to engage them in dialogue, to assure them that the dominion that he seeks to build isn't of this world, and to forsake the trappings of power and privilege. That's why Jesus is so careful to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a horse. It's a sign of humility, a clear indication to the city and its leaders that he has no interest in challenging the authorities for earthly power. Sadly, it doesn't go quite as well as Jesus might have hoped. Word gets out that Jesus is coming into the city and throngs of people gather along the route to welcome him. They roll out the red, car the red carpet, laying out garments and branches to pave the way for the entourage of Jesus and the disciples. Countless people gather along the way, waving their branches and singing a song of welcome, one that hails Jesus as a conquering hero, the one who brings the dominion of David. That's all the evidence the religious and political officials need. Jesus is a traitor, a terrorist, and they'll do anything and everything to stop him. His fate is sealed the moment those crowds gather. Brett Blair writes, lest we be too critical of Jerusalem, ask yourself this question. What city today would not be shaken by Jesus' entry into it? Imagine Jesus entering New York or Belgrade or Washington or even Memphis. Oh, I'm sure we'd welcome him with our hosannas at first anyway. We'd line the streets and strike up the band and have a grand parade right down Main Street. But I'm equally sure that by the end of the week, we'd have nailed him to a cross too. Why? Because the kingdom Jesus came to establish still threatens the kingdoms of this world your kingdom, and mine. 
the kingdoms where greed and power and lust rule instead of grace and mercy and peace. And who among us really wants to surrender our lives to that kingdom and that king? Jesus doesn't give up, though. He goes straight to the temple when he enters the city. He's determined to make clear once more that his goal is spiritual transformation rather than earthly power. Mark's statement that Jesus looked around at the temple before leaving and going back to Bethany with the disciples is perhaps a reminder that in those moments in the temple, Jesus has had to face the reality that his fate is already sealed. There is no way to convince the religious and political officials that he poses no violent threat to them. The truth is Jesus is a victim of his own success. He has sought to reach out to those excluded and forgotten by the rest of society. Jesus has sought to bring healing and wholeness to those who struggled, hope to those in despair, and life to those who felt it slipping away from them. He has sought to create a, a community of people dedicated to reclaiming the spirit of the Jewish faith, one that honors the sacredness of all creation. That movement has attracted and inspired many, and it's those very numbers that threaten the leaders who will decide Jesus' earthly fate. From Bethany, Jesus will return to Jerusalem and drive out those who set up shop in the temple. He will try to remind those gathered there of the vision of a world brought together, of divisions healed and of a God who isn't limited by time and place. In those troubled last days, Jesus will also warn of the coming struggles for the religious and political leaders have ignored the plight of those who are most vulnerable among them. There is a price to pay for there will be more insurrections to come and the empire itself will eventually crumble. The powers that be have promised peace, but it is a promise they cannot keep. At this point, Jesus is free to speak truth, for his fate has been sealed. He knows that, and his goal now is to empower disciples and all who will hear and understand as best they can what it is that they will face in the coming days, weeks, and years. All of this culminates in the Last Supper, that Passover meal shared with the disciples in which Jesus stands up and shares bread and wine with them as signs of his continuing presence with them. No matter what may come, nothing will ever separate Jesus from the disciples. They will continue the work he began, and in them he will rise to life again. And then accepting that there is no alternative without violence, Jesus surrenders to the religious and political leaders. When they accuse him of being an insurrectionist, he will not deny it. It won't do any good anyway. His fate is sealed. Instead, Jesus embraces his impending death, not with relish, but with resolve. Nothing can prepare him for the suffering he will endure, but Jesus faces it knowing that he offers the world a different way, one that responds to lies with truth, to violence with peace, and to hatred with love. In his book, Who is Christ?, theologian Anthony Padadavano writes, the suffering of the cross is not meant for itself, but for something else. 
Christ does not suffer because suffering is in itself a value, but because love without restraint requires suffering. We are saved not by the physical death of Jesus, but by the absoluteness of a love which did not count death too high a price. That's the ultimate lesson of Holy Week, I think. It's impossible to love truly and completely unless we are willing to suffer with and for those we love. The last few weeks have been a stark reminder of the ways in which our world is still held captive to the same powers that crucified Jesus. Ignorance and hatred and greed and violence still seem to wield ultimate power over all of us. The deadly consequences of our obsession with guns have come roaring back in the midst of this pandemic. It seems as if we've made so little progress toward a more just, loving, and peaceful world since that first holy week. Yet Jesus calls to all of us from the cross and invites us to realize that the struggle goes on and each of us has a role to play. Yes, there will be challenges and dangers, but the one who loved us enough to endure the agony of the cross invites us to love the world enough to give our all for the sake of once more embodying a different way, one marked by love. Amen.